Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for September 23rd, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardow. I'm delighted to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, your source each Friday for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week's show considers a pending en banc petition in the Ninth Circuit that stands to redefine a federal criminal statute vital to the digital age, and a recent state appellate ruling that strikes a balance between municipal aesthetics and the need for ever more encroaching telecommunication appurtenances. First, Jamie Lee Williams of the Electronic Frontier Foundation will visit to chat the recent Ninth Circuit ruling in Facebook vs. Power Ventures, a case that examined the Federal Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, in which, Ms. Williams says, stands to criminalize a broad swath of innocuous online activity. In that case, a social media aggregator, Power Ventures, pulled certain information off a Facebook site with the permission of Facebook users, but without the permission of Facebook itself. After Power ignored a cease and desist letter from the social media giant, Facebook sued, and the Ninth Circuit panel determined Power had violated the federal statute. Though a battle between major social media competitors might seem a relatively rare event, Ms. Williams says that this ruling could make federal crimes out of everyday occurrences, like a husband letting his wife handle some of his online banking, or a son logging into his mother's Netflix account. Ms. Williams helped author an amicus brief petitioning for en banc review with her organization, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, along with the ACLU. That petition awaits a determination. Then Jeffrey Melching, of Rutan and Tucker, We'll visit to discuss last week's first appellate district ruling in T-Mobile West versus the city and county of San Francisco, which considered as an issue of first impression whether a municipal government could rightly regulate certain telecommunications equipment placed on public rights of way purely on the basis of aesthetics. T-Mobile and other telecoms argued that state statutes preempted the local ordinance at issue here and required San Francisco to allow the appurtenances so long as they did not physically obstruct the flow of pedestrians and cars through the rights of way. But, reading those state statutes broadly, looking to a Ninth Circuit ruling for persuasive authority, and determining that rights of way have meaning beyond simply their ability to convey traffic, the unanimous First District panel held that a locality may proscribe unsightly equipment that would offend the aesthetic sensibilities of its citizens. Mr. Melton co-authored an amicus brief for the prevailing side and will discuss the ruling's impact on the future battles between cities and telecom providers. But before we hear from my guest, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for your having tuned into this program. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And with that, let's hear from Jamie Lee Williams. We're happy to welcome into the show now Jamie Lee Williams, a staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an organization dedicated to protecting the rights of folks in, in the digital space. And she co-authored an amicus brief encouraging the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to, to rehear on Bonk its recent decision. In this case, we'll be talking about Facebook v. Power Ventures, which considered the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Ms. Williams, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Maybe before we get into your particular contentions and your concerns with this ruling that you, you brought up in your group's amicus brief, let's uh, walk briefly through the underlying case. We have, on one hand, Facebook, obviously a, a well-known company, and on the other side here we have Power Ventures, less well-known company, but I believe also a social media company of some kind. And I believe their goal is to aggregate folks' social media presences. So say if someone logged in there into Power Ventures, they could see their friends, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, all their activity in, in one place as opposed to having to log into those places. That's true. This case actually started quite a while ago. So some of the more modern social media entities or platforms were involved at that point. But basically, yeah, they were a social media aggregator. So users of different social media platforms could provide their username and password to Power. And then Power would pull from those sites and put onto one web page, a friend list, messages, things like that so that you can go to one website and access it all in one place. And then you could click through to go back to Facebook from their site. But the social media aggregation is exactly what they were providing as a service. So now obviously Facebook brings suit against them eventually. What um, what was the, the particular activity, the particular computing access activity that Power was engaging in that, that first attracted Facebook's notice? So as I mentioned before, they would get the usernames and passwords from the users, and that was voluntary provided. The users were signing up for power. It's just like signing up through Mint. You have to give your bank's username and password so that it can pull all the data and put it all in one place. That's like, I think, a common one that people might use. 
today. And so they did that. The users gave the username and password. And then Power also asked the users for authorization to send messages or um, event invitations, actually. And they were invitations to try Power to the user's Facebook friends. So the users agreed to that. They clicked through and then Power would send these messages inside of Facebook's system to Facebook's users, kind of on Facebook's platform. And I think that is what Facebook predominantly didn't like. And so they asked Power if, if they would stop doing this. They eventually sent them a cease and desist letter. Power didn't comply with that. And then they tried to set up an IP address block too, which ended up not being effective because Power was using um, a dynamic IP address, so that IP address was rotating. Ultimately, Facebook was able to stop them accessing their website through blacklisting Power.com, or maybe they used a couple, but they blacklisted their terminology from coming up on the website, and they stopped it that way. And then they also filed suit. Essentially, then Power would be engaging these Power members, users' accounts to, to send some Facebook messages within Facebook. But as you say, they were doing so um, with the authorization, if not of Facebook, at least of those particular members. On the yeah, site. and they were they were sending the messages in, and they were also just accessing the Facebook data too. So you have the when Facebook filed the lawsuit, they sued under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act for unauthorized access to computers. And we're talking here about Facebook's computers and Facebook system, the data stored within that because all of the individual users, Facebook data is stored on Facebook servers somewhere. And then you have the setting of the messages, which Facebook um, sued under the CAN-SPAM Act, which was thrown out by the Ninth Circuit. And so it's not part of the petition for rehearing en banc, the CAN-SPAM claims. Sure, yeah. The remaining fight seems to be over the CFA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the CAN-SPAM, I think everyone seems to agree that that was the right outcome. Facebook's not appealing it. Yeah, okay. Uh, Well, then maybe focusing in on the CFAA uh, before we jump in here, can you tell me specifically what that federal statute proscribes? So the CFAA is the federal anti-computer, quote-unquote, hacking statute. It was passed back in 1986, and it prohibits accessing computers without authorization or in excess of authorization. And there's a couple of different provisions under the statute. Like one involves like an intent to commit fraud, but all of the statute's provisions include those without authorization language. And without authorization isn't defined in the statute, and the statute doesn't specify who must give authorization, whether it can be an account holder, like a Facebook user, or whether it needs to be the computer owner, like Facebook itself, or an employer versus an employee with an account. So that has created a lot of confusion, and it's kind of why we're talking today. Yeah, an important distinction, obviously, in this case, where there is authorization from certain parties, but not from from others. Exactly. Now, I understand that in the district court, Facebook was successful on the CFAA count uh, at the summary judgment stage. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So then in in getting into its uh, analysis of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reviewing that decision first laid out um, the relevant precedent, a handful of cases that have touched on that statute over the past few years, a couple um, under the name Nozal, one, uh, the LVRC Holdings case. Um, Could you describe to me what happened in in these relevant precedents? Yeah, so the LVRC case, we actually refer to that as BRECA, which was the other party involved in that case, just because it's easier to say. Um, (laughs) And so BRECA involved a duty of loyalty claim where you had an employer who was emailing himself corporate documents from his email address. And the employer said that you're violating the CFAA because when you started accessing the computer in a way that wasn't for your work, um, there wasn't actually a terms of use issue there, but they claim that when the when Brecca, the employee, violated his duty of loyalty to the company, he was acting without authorization under the CFAA. And that was a position that had been adopted by other circuit courts, but the Ninth Circuit rejected it and said the CFAA doesn't impute any duty of loyalty. Breaching your duty of loyalty to your employer doesn't render access without authorization. There has to be a clear revocation of, of access. Um, and then you have Nozzle, 
And Nozzle involved in other employee situations. A lot of the CFAA cases, even though it is a criminal statute, involve employee and employer situations where you have an employer alleging a CFAA cause of action as a result of some kind of disloyal employee behavior or alleged disloyal employee behavior. So in Nozzle, again, it's also an an ex-employee. There were actually a couple of defecting employees from Corn Ferry, which is a a fairly large and well-known executive recruiting firm. And Nozzle was one of them. So he left with a couple of other people. Um, One of the people in the group actually remained within the company. So when three of the employees left, their user credentials to access the company's private database were rescinded, but they had another employee that remained there who had valid login credentials. And she used the login credentials to pull information from Corn Ferry database, and then she shared it with the people who had left who were starting their own kind of competing service. And so that went up to the Ninth Circuit initially, and the Ninth Circuit said, no, the CFAA was an anti-hacking statute. There's no circumvention of any technological access barriers. So they adopted a narrow interpretation of the statute, um, citing BRCA, saying this duty of loyalty does not give rise to CFAA. The CFAA requires more. And then they went on to say, we don't want to make this law that was supposed to target computer break-ins a general computer misuse statute. And so they held that in order to keep the statute in line with Congress's intent and not transform it into this massive misuse statute that would give private agreements the force of criminal law and turn millions of people into criminals on the basis of innocuous behavior. The examples that the court used were selling something on Craigslist that's not allowed. Because Craigslist, for instance, is a public website, but it has a list of all these things that you're not allowed to sell. And so if you go and sell one of those, is that a CFAA violation? Or for instance, Facebook says you can't make up a fake name or a fake age when you're registering your account. So I think the Judge Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit said, what if you register and say you're tall, dark, and handsome, when really that's completely not the case? Um, Would that be a CFA violation? And so the concern about transforming innocent people into criminals on the basis of of innocuous behavior. So the court is really concerned about that. And so those are the two... Ninth Circuit precedent after Nozzle 1, it seemed really clear that the Ninth Circuit was adopting a very narrow interpretation of the statute and limiting it to the purpose intended by Congress, which was to target computer break-ins. And then you have the two recent Ninth Circuit cases, the second Nozzle case um, and the Facebook versus Power case, which kind of have made things a little more unclear. It seems like some of that precedent pertains to relatively distinguishable circumstances, like an employer with a private database that gets mined by employees and, and exploited, and then you know those employees maybe use that information to take advantage of their their company or their former company. Whereas here, you know, the the plaintiff in this case, Facebook, it's it's not an employer. I mean, it has employees, but in this instance, it's a publicly facing website. It's a, a published entity out there. Uh, its whole goal is to be accessed by many, many people. It, it sort of just seems like precedent that's based on an employer-employee dynamic isn't particularly instructive in this context. Well, there's a couple of things to that. One of the problems with the CFA is because it's so vague, it does apply to all these different contexts on it seemingly. But one of the critiques of the CFA is that it's supposed to be targeting computer break-ins, but because it's so vague, it has been used to apply to every single bad thing that might potentially happen that happens to involve a computer. So when you're talking about the employee situation and employer's secrets, that situation should be covered under trade secret law. Nozzle was also charged with and and convicted of multiple counts of trade secret theft. And so we don't really need the CFA in that case. And then when you're talking about the Facebook versus power situation, there's definitely other causes of action that could apply there too. I mean, if this was in the offline world, you might um, allege intentional interference with business relations because Facebook has this business relation with its user and they're saying that power is interfering with that. And so just because it involves this computer, we're trying to use the CFAA. And there's actually a podcast that Reply All did on the CFAA, and it's titled The Law That Sticks for exactly that reason. Because it's so vague, you can slap it onto any case that involves a computer. 
and it would stick. The one thing I would say about Facebook being a public website is that it, it actually, you do need a Facebook username and password to log in, right? If, if you try to go to Facebook without logging in, you're prompted to create a, your, uh, an account. And you can create one, but you can't really access anything without logging in. So there's definitely an authentication gate, a username and password gate. It's not, it's not the same as um, Craigslist, for instance. But, but you're right that it's, it, the dynamics are slightly different than the employer context. But I, I think that the, the Nozzle 1 court's holding that the CFAA was meant to target computer break-ins and should be limited to that is a limitation that should apply in this context too. Okay, the, the moving along with the Ninth Circuit's analysis, they tend to, to distill down all that precedent into essentially two points that they identify. One, that a defendant runs afoul of the CFAA when accessing a computer without permission. And two, that a violation of you know, companies or some computer entities' terms of service is not enough alone for a, a violation of the statute. So having laid out essentially those two controlling points, why did the panel believe here that these particular acts did violate the statute? Well, just to step one step back um, to give a little bit more insight into their holding. So they held that the Facebook users could give power authorization to access their accounts. But then when Facebook sent a cease and desist letter that said, you can't access, you don't have permission anymore, then Power clearly knew that Facebook didn't want them accessing the website. They didn't have authorization to do so, and their acts, their authorization was from the users was rendered void. So that is where the court is kind of narrowing in on. They're still saying that a violation of a terms of service is not enough for a CFAA violation, and they're saying that to square the decision with Nozzle 1. But the problem is, is that it's very unclear the line between those two things. So a terms of service violation is an upfront prohibition that a, a website such as Facebook might post to alert people how they want people accessing their website, um, how they want people using their website. And sometimes terms of service restrictions are worded in terms of access and sometimes they're worded in terms of use. Um, and so what constitutes sufficient notice? Could it be some kind of pop-up message on the website that says you're not allowed to access this unless you're the valid account holder? Um, say that was a Netflix pop-up and you are using your mom's Netflix account. Is, is that clear notice that your authorization that your mom or your friend gave you to use it um, is, is that now? If you click through, is that a CFAA violation? So what, how is it different than a terms of service violation versus a pop-up violation? So that's where it gets confusing because the court just says this, the cease and desist letter here was sufficient, but it doesn't really explain why in any way that can give guidance for the future. And that's why people have been calling and emailing EFF confused about, about what types of password sharing violate the CFAA. I mean, essentially, it seems like the, the panel is suggesting that there is a, a bright line that can be drawn between a violation of a terms of service and then a violation that it continues that, you know, say a party has been alerted now that by some sort of express notice that, hey, you are, in fact, violating this terms of service. Uh, and so, in, you know, now this is a federal criminal violation as opposed to before it when it was not. But as you say, that express notice could be a pretty minor thing like a pop-up or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And it also seems slightly disingenuous because if we're talking, I mean, one of the concerns in Nozzle 1 was giving private agreements the force of law and turning the scope of criminal law. I mean, Facebook versus Power is, of course, a civil case, but it's a criminal statute. And it's unlike trespass, right, in the real world, which has criminal trespass and civil trespass, and they're two different things. They're two different bodies of law. We have one body of law here, so it's going to be interpreted the same in both cases. Um, and so in Nozo, the court's really concerned about giving private agreements and what employers wish and what they think is right and wrong as far as use of their computers is concerned, giving that the force of criminal law. And so here you're still turning liability on what the computer owner, how they want you to be using your system instead of on whether you've done any actual harm or damage to the system. 
And so it seems disingenuous to try to draw a line between some types of use restrictions and other types of restrictions that a company also wants to put up without actually installing any technological restrictions that would require a computer break-in to get around. Okay. Um, I think one other point that's been made by some commentators is that the focus on that change in, in mental state from not knowing for certain whether you were committing a violation to then after some express notice like a cease and desist letter, then a party certainly knowing they were doing something that the computer owner did not want. You know, So now they, they officially knew that that just is all sort of tied to a mental state and less so the act itself, the, the actual access remains the same. The only thing that's changed is the knowledge of the party in terms of um, the computer owner not wanting that access to occur. Now, you know, and you say this is a civil case, but the analysis would apply in, in criminal activity and a lot of, you know, in, in crimes, you know, the mental state is generally a separate element than the act itself. It seems sort of strange here. It seems like they seem to be alighted a bit. Yeah. I mean, mental state is often taken into account, but it is its own separate element of each crime. So if somebody accidentally ran into someone um, and like and hit them, but it was a complete accident, like you trip and fall and you hit someone, then you don't have the requisite mens rea to get a battery, right? Because you, you don't have an intent, not even an intent to touch, intent to cause harm, either in any state, you, ha- you don't have any intent to do anything. So, in, I mean, intent is a common thing here, but reading intent into other parts of the statute when it's its own part of the statute is problematic. But what's even more problematic is the CFAA is concerned, or maybe not even more problematic, but equally problematic, is that the mens rea requirement in the actual text of the CFA applies to access, which I think is part of the reason why it's so confusing because it's very hard to unintentionally access a website unless you're like pocket dialing something, um, which happens with phone numbers, but less so less frequently, I think, with actual URLs. Other countries are pushing towards a mens rea that requires intent to cause harm. So when we're talking about intent, like the intent to do what? with the CFA is is an important issue and one that I think should be modified and fixed by Congress. Concluding the, the panel's analysis here, they, they end up saying that these acts are a violation and, and powers is liable under the statute to, to Facebook. Now you've filed this amicus brief on behalf of the EFF and lay, you lay out a number of different points for why there's a problem with this ruling. One of them is that this ruling creates some inconsistency with the previous precedent. Of course, the panel, in its opinion, seemed to think this fit right in line with the precedent. Um, why, in your opinion, does this ruling create inconsistency with those cases that we've discussed? So we actually filed an amicus brief with the ACLU, too. So it was both of us okay. on there together who wrote the brief. Um, and we feel that it's inconsistent with prior precedent, specifically NOZA 1, because Nozzle 1 was clear that the CFA was not supposed to be a computer misuse statute. It's supposed to be a law targeting computer break-ins. And the court's decision completely loses sight of this. Um, of course, one of the facts of the case was this this alleged circumvention of a IP address block. But the court didn't even look at that. I mean, one of the questions that was teed up in the briefing was, does this constitute circumvention of a technological access barrier? to make it a computer break-in, and the court didn't even look at that. So it seems like they're taking a step back from Nozzle's one limiting principle in that way, and that was important because it was talking about limiting the statute to the purpose Congress intended it to have instead of this broader, constitutionally questionable reach. One other point that you make in your filing is that this ruling suggests that, that a bare violation of a terms of service agreement can can be enough for for liability under the statute, but the the panel says it's it is still holding that a bare violation is not enough. There has to be some something else. Um, so what do you mean when you say that you know this ruling effectively allows for liability with you know a bare violation of a terms of service or you know just a an act in contravention of what uh, a computer owner wants? I think that. What you're getting at is the point that we made about how the line that the court draws in the case is very unclear. So it, it's unclear how they're saying that they're upholding this nozzle principle, but also saying that once you get the cease and desist letter about about the computer owner's intent of how you use their computers, 
because it's unclear what types of notice is required and because it could be something similar to a terms of service um, prohibition, but just in another form, that's where the line becomes unclear and creates a lot of ambiguity and questions going forward. That's another big focus with your filing as well, that there there's uncertainty and there's there's vagueness now uh, you know, in terms of this particular statute. Could you give me some illustrations of specifically certain types of activity that um, you might sound pretty innocuous, but could arguably now fall under the aegis of this statute? Yeah, so one of the examples we give in the brief would be logging into a partner's bank account even after you see, again, some kind of pop-up notice or maybe they've gotten some kind of email that says you're not allowed to or access this on behalf of other people or only authorized users are allowed to access the website. Anyone else who violates it is is violating our terms. They don't have any authorization from us. Maybe they say they used to, but we're not doing that anymore. We've changed our policies. We've decided that it's not good for security. And then the partner continues to access it anyway. And just like in this case, the Facebook users, their authorization to Facebook continued all along. And so a partner might be saying, oh, you saw that notice. Just ignore it. Um, you need to log in to do something, to pay a, a bill at the last minute that your partner forgot to pay, something like that. That could be a violation of the CFA. And those types of activities, logging in on behalf of, of a loved one or a, someone close to you, happens all the time. And, and it's going to happen even more with the Internet of Things, where every little thing in our house and our life has a sensor um, and potentially is associated with an account that requires a login. So your fridge, the smart fridge, and has some kind of account online. You go online to order eggs or something under your partner's account. I mean, that could be a CFA violation if there was there was a some kind of notice. And the type of notice, again, isn't specified by the court, and so it could be anything. Sure, so something relatively minimal. That, um, yeah, there's no, um, there's no guidance at all. Obviously, on the other side of this, Facebook debates how much weight the Ninth Circuit should put into those potential future scenarios uh, when it's considering whether to rehear this. this case. They argue that, hey, you know, the the facts pertaining to this case are enough to rule on and those other circumstances where, you know, there's a partner logging into a bank account or a partner buying eggs from a fridge, you know, they're kind of too speculative and they don't, they don't really pertain to this exact case. What's your response to, to that argument? I mean, they're essentially saying like, this case needs to be limited to its facts. Um, but this is a criminal statute, even though it's a civil case. And so the rule of lenity applies, which is a rule that a vague statute must be interpreted narrowly in favor of the defendant to avoid an interpretation that would criminalize an innocuous conduct. And the reason is not just because of the facts of that particular case. It's because you need to give people fair notice of what constitutes criminal conduct going forward. And so the rule of lenity applies here. It's a criminal statute, and the interpretation that the court adopted threatens to make the statute unconstitutionally vague. And so the court needs to think about how the the statute's going to be interpreted moving forward. And one of the other things that renders the statute unconstitutionally vague is giving prosecutors too much discretion to apply the statute um, arbitrarily and in a discriminatory fashion. And the reason that's a constitutional issue is because Congress and courts, not prosecutors, need to define the scope of what is criminal and what is not criminal. And the court's decision fails to do that. Um, It's their job to do that. And so they need to relook at this case and issue a decision that gives people notice going forward. Speaking of, you know, Congress needing to be specific about the things that need to be punished or not as opposed to, to prosecutors selectively um, choosing those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Th- this statute is, is 30 years old. I, is there any problem, you know, with the fact that we're relating back to, a, you know, a, a generation old statute to apply it to, you know, modern technological activity? Is there, you know, some chance that Congress would pass a new statute that would define the things that you can and cannot do in, in these sorts of contexts? Yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that the statute is 30 years old is one of the reasons why it doesn't work any longer. I, I mean, 1986 is when it was passed. Um, one of the things that inspired the statute was war games, uh, 1983 fantasy techno thriller being played in congressional hearings. And that, for people who aren't aware, is a movie about a boy who likes computer games, who starts playing a computer game on this computer. Um, and accidentally triggers thermonuclear 
World War III. And that was presented in Congress as a realistic representation of the threats of quote-unquote hacking. And so they passed the statute in response largely to fears of the future ahead. And 1986 was like right around the time that the, the modern internet was born. It was just as ARPANET was being transferred into this decentralized network of networks. Most people weren't online. It was largely researchers and academic institutions that had access to the internet. And so, yeah, the statute is so old, it does not contemplate a world where we access people's computers every day. So, I mean, every time I open my computer, I'm probably accessing someone else's computer to check Gmail. I'm accessing someone's computer, Facebook, any other social media, because I'm pulling data from servers, which are computers, all over the world. And so we need a law that contemplates that, I mean, that's just going to be increasingly true, again, as more and more of the devices that we carry around every day have little computer chips in them. So we need a new law at this point, not just limiting interpretations of this this totally outdated law that's drastically showing its age. And unfortunately, some people in Congress are trying to push in the other direction to like amp up the penalties for the CFA. It's, it has ridiculously high penalties. You might have heard of the case of Aaron Schwartz, who was facing 35 years in prison for downloading automatically lots and lots of law or um, academic journal articles. But 35 years was a tremendous amount of time for him to be facing for that. He ultimately took his own life. And so EFF has been working on Aaron's Law, which is a proposal to limit the CFA's harsh penalties, which would give courts more discretion when people are found guilty of violating the statute to actually give a sentence that fits. Um, It would also make sure that terms of use violations do not give rise to CFA liability. And then another big problem with the CFA is it deters security research, which is also really important for making us all safe. And so one of the proposals in reform would be to make sure there's a carve out for security researchers. Then certainly there seems to be a sizable cohort on your and the ACLU's side of this argument, hoping for a rehearing. And likewise, on on the other side, I'd be curious, one last question to know, if, how you feel about the changes of a rehearing. And if one is not granted, do you think that this particular case is one that might merit the notice of the, the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah, I think it's always really hard to speculate about what the courts are going to do. Um, I don't like to do it because I just feel like you can never sure. really know. The Nozel case, the last time it went to the Ninth Circuit, it was taken en banc. So there's clearly judges who who care about the scope of the CFA and understand that that it's an important law that may may be confusing. So that may bode well, but you really can never say. And then as far as the, the Supreme Court, there is a circuit split right now regarding this just the straight question of whether terms of service violations can give rise to the CFAA. But all of the older cases are the ones who, who are saying, yes, terms of service violations can give rise to the CFAA. And the newer cases, the Nozzle Ninth Circuit case, uh, the Second Circuit, case from last year, U.S. versus Volley, and then um, a Fourth Circuit case. The more recent cases have been holding that terms of service violations alone cannot give rise to CFA liability. So there is a circuit split, but but the the high court may be waiting for um, the circuits to kind of resolve it themselves since the the trends tend to be switching instead of like one court saying one thing while the other court saying on it back and forth. And so I think if the, the Supreme Court sees it as this this trend, then it may think that it doesn't need to step in at the moment and um, resolve things. Okay. We'll leave it there for now and certainly stay tuned. I'm sure anyone, whoever uses a computer, will be, will be curious how these questions get yeah. resolved um, eventually in the courts. Yeah. Uh, Ms. Jamie Lee Williams of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Once again, that was Jamie Lee Williams of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, speaking of the recent ruling in Facebook v. Power Ventures and her hopes for a rehearing en banc. We'll move now to my discussion with Mr. Jeffrey Melching. We're welcoming in now Jeff Melching, a partner with Rutan and Tucker, who works in the firm's government and regulatory law section, and who co-authored an amicus brief in the case we'll discuss presently. Mr. Melching, thanks for being on the podcast. 
Uh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. The case here, T-Mobile West et al. versus the city and county of San Francisco essentially pits on one side some telecoms, including T-Mobile, who want to place some wireless communications equipment on utility poles in the county of San Francisco. And then on the other side, um, San Francisco, which has passed an ordinance requiring that before such equipment is placed, the the city or or county first must approve it based not necessarily on whether it's safe or whether it blocks the, the roadway, but just based on whether it looks aesthetically pleasing enough, right? Yeah, I think that's that's the the upshot of uh, of the dispute or the dispute that was. Um, I would say that what San Francisco was doing in terms of attempting to sort of manage the appearance of its public rights of way to the extent that it could is isn't uncommon. Um, in fact, this issue about the extent of local agency regulatory authority over aesthetic issues in the public rights of way is something that has been brewing in in cities and in city council chambers and planning commission chambers now for five, six, seven years. Um, we have seen that as sort of a growing level of tension around that issue. And that, that growing level of tension corresponds to, uh, you know, the wider deployment of cellular and wireless facilities. And as that deployment has become more pervasive and you've seen more and more antennas um, and the desire to place more and more antennas um, so that people can access more data and have better coverage and, and, and rely on their phones as they do more and more, uh, we have seen a corresponding desire for an increase in the number of antennas, and that has pushed a lot more applications into the rights-of-way, which is where you already see lots of other public utility infrastructure like power poles and light poles and the telephone poles, for that matter. So that's really the background on this lawsuit. So then enter this specific ordinance. Uh, I believe it's Ordinance 1211 issued by San Francisco. Could you tell me specifically what this ordinance required? Sure. Um, Obviously, a lot goes into an ordinance, but the gist of this ordinance was uh, that it regulated wireless facility placements in the public rights of way. Um, And as is common in a lot of jurisdictions up and down the state, it attempted to accomplish that regulation with a a sort of a two-dimensional approach. On one hand, it looked at the size of the antennas and other equipment that were going to be placed in the public rights of way. So it had a tier one and a tier two and a tier three, tier one being the smallest and tier three being the largest. And then it simultaneously looked at more and less preferred locations around the city. So, for example, placing a facility on a on a designated historic structure might get more scrutiny than placing a, a facility on an office building or uh, outside of an office building, I should say, because we're talking about right-of-way siting. So that's, a, that's a, a fairly typical structure. The idea there is that the larger the antenna or the less desirable the location, the higher level of scrutiny that would go into the placement of a facility at that location. So um, in San Francisco's case, their ordinance, if you went with a tier three facility, was going to require public noticing. Um, And in some instances, even a showing that you know, before you could go with a tier three facility, you needed to demonstrate that a tier two or a tier one couldn't work. Um, And this is, as I said, a fairly typical approach for local agencies, which sort of try and steer wireless providers to installing the least obtrusive facilities at the least undesirable, if you'll tolerate the double negative, uh, locations by making placements in those circumstances easier than placements where the facility is less desirable and the location is less desirable. Yeah, it certainly seems reasonable enough for anyone that's been on the uh, the public avenues of San Francisco. It, uh, some of those utility poles have uh, gotten a bit crowded. Yeah, there is that. And that's a two-edged sword uh, for local agencies. On the one hand, uh, the point that you were sort of arcing at is there is a problem with urban clutter in the public rights of way. Um, and the more you allow it to go unchecked, the worse it becomes. And especially in a city that can be a walking city um, like San Francisco, you know, people are using the right of way not just for the utilitarian purpose of traveling, but also as a as as a a form of recreation, as it were. 
Um, and so there is, there is that. The way it cuts the other direction, though, and the, the, the legitimate talking point that the wireless um, industry has is, well, look, there are a hundred years of telephone poles and light poles and you know irrigation cabinets that help turn on sprinklers in the public rights of way and those big cabinets that help that are there to help operate the traffic lights and all of those things are already in the public rights of way and here we are wireless company and we're sort of Johnny come lately to this situation and now now's the time when local agencies have decided that they are going to kind of from their perspective, from the wireless industry perspective, turn the screws on this issue. Uh, the local agencies would say enough is enough, and wireless industry would say, why are you picking on me? Okay, so arguments on both sides there. Could you walk me through what sure. exactly happened before the litigation? Did T-Mobile seek a permit, or did they just move for an injunction of this ordinance before actually trying to get a permit? Great question, because uh, in the end, I think that, that that's very important to the disposition of the case. Uh, this is a facial challenge, so it isn't based on the application of uh, San Francisco's ordinance to any particular facts or proposed placement of a wireless facility at a proposed location in San Francisco. Instead, T-Mobile made the decision, presumably a litigation decision, that they wanted to challenge the ordinance as a whole and say simply, you know, San Francisco, you just don't have the power to do this period to any application. Uh, for a wireless facility in the public rights of way. And so it's teed up not in the context of a specific dispute, but rather in the context of the question, is this inside or outside the city's authority to regulate at all? And their particular argument on that point, I believe, is that there are already laws on the books that describe what the, the mandates are for companies like them to, to place facilities. There are state statutes that say when and how such facilities can be can be placed, and so those would preempt um, any city ordinance. Uh, could you tell me a bit about the, the state laws that T-Mobile uh, mentioned? T-Mobile principally relies on two statutes um, close together in number. The first is Public Utilities Code Section 7901.1, um, which in effect gave T-Mobile a uh, what, what they call a franchise, um, which is a right. T-Mobile has a right, and local agencies don't contest this to utilize the public rights of way for the placement of telephone um, and, and, for that matter, telegraph um, lines. And courts have subsequently interpreted the term telephone lines and telegraph lines to include wireless facilities that, that are necessary for providing telephony. Um, and, so, and neither of the sides disputed that point. So T-Mobile's primary argument is that we, we T-Mobile, have a state franchise granted to us pursuant to Public Utilities Code Section 7901.1 that says we have the right to use the public, public rights of way. And then they go on from there to assert that because they have that state-granted right, that local agencies have no authority over how the public rights of way are used. And that right there is the 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 uh, the flashpoint of dispute between local agencies and the telecommunications industry, because the local agencies have said, and in fact, in our amicus brief, the portion of our amicus brief that was quoted in in the judicial opinion, the court sort of acknowledges that the issue for local agencies isn't can we prohibit wireless providers from utilizing the public rights-of-way? That would be a losing argument. In fact, that is an argument that San Francisco lost about 70 years ago in, an, in a different case involving Pacific Telephone. Um, the, the argument for local agencies is instead, can we require that the placement of facilities in the public rights-of-way be done in a way that respects also the local agency's interests. A couple of examples. Can we require that equipment, instead of being placed in an above-ground cabinet, be placed underground so that it's less unsightly? Can we require that an antenna be painted a color to match a pole? Can we require that an antenna not be 50 feet above the ground if 30 feet above the ground would do? 
here's another one. Can we require that the cabling and the electrical power cords that go to the antenna on a, on a power pole, that, that, that those items be placed inside the power pole so they don't look like random cables hanging off a pole? These are all of the kinds of things that local agencies have said, look, we want to be in a position to require that these things be done. And, and those things, some of those can be characterized as, you know, really public safety type of issues, but others are straight aesthetic issues. And they go to not to excluding um, wireless facilities from the public rights of way, but, make, but rather to making sure that they go in the public rights of way in an intelligent way. So, and I know I've been talking for a while, but 7901, Public Utilities Code Section 7901, really consumed the lion's share of the discussion in the Court of Appeals decision. I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there are two other um, Public Utilities Code sections that were relevant in the decision. One was Section 7901.1, and that one effectively says that consistent with the uh, whatever authority exists in favor of local agencies in Section 7901.1, that those local agencies have the power to regulate the time, place, and manner with which the public rights of way are accessed. And the Court of Appeal offered a very useful clarification of what that statute means in this case as well. What it said was that Section 7901.1 really deals with the period of time when the public rights of way are being accessed for construction. So those time, place, and manner regulations relate to, you know, should there be a traffic control plan and, and, and all of the things that happen during the period of time when the rights of way are being accessed. But once the installation work is done, the construction phase is over and you have a standing facility, then it's really Section 7901 that is triggered, um, and and that becomes the governing statute. And then very quickly, there is a third statute um, that the Court of Appeal mentions favorably, and this is important. That's that's Public Utilities Code Section 2902. And the reason that that's interesting that it's mentioned is that statute says that the local agencies don't have the power that they may not surrender their powers to control and supervise the relationship between a public utility and the general public in matters affecting the health, convenience, and safety of the general public, including the location of polls. So uh, it was. I found it interesting and arguably important that the court referenced Section 2902 because it sort of backs up the idea that Section 7901 wasn't preemptive it was, the grant of a statewide franchise wasn't intended to um, sort of lock out local agencies from the ability to also control how their rights of way are accessed. In fact, Section 2902 says that local agencies don't even have the power to do that. A fair amount of empowering language to the localities and, and those different yeah. statutes, which we'll touch on a bit more. So I understand that T-Mobile was unsuccessful at the superior court level and then brought an appeal, I think, at this point, is that when your appellate team at uh, Rattan and Tucker got involved? Yeah, we we really got involved um, when the appeal was filed, um, and in as the appeal was filed, we were aware of it. Um, frankly, because there are cities up and down the state, including some that I represent as as non amicus but regular clients who um, are dealing with these issues on a day-in and day-out basis um, because they are drafting ordinances. They really have their boots on the ground. They're drafting ordinances and processing applications, and they have wireless companies coming in and saying, you can't do that, or, or you're doing that wrong. And a lot of those arguments come down to, well, do you have any authority to control aesthetics in the public rights-of-way at all? And so we all have been waiting a long time for a published um, decision of a California court. Um, there, there is another decision, a, a decision from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which was persuasive, um, involved the uh, city of Palos Verdes Estates. It was a persuasive decision, but it wasn't the law in California. So we've all been waiting for a determination. Um, and I think this is as good a point as any to make my pitch for certainty. Um, I will say this. Had local agencies lost this case, as unpalatable as that outcome would have been, 
it still would have been better than continuing to exist in an environment where the wireless agencies say the law is one way and the local agencies say the law is another way. And the parties end up just sort of in friction with each other about how much authority exists. That's that's a real drain on resources. Um, and so I, I, for one, think certainty is a good thing um, and it leads to efficiency. Sure. And as you say, this is the first opportunity that a California court has has had to, to publish a decision granting that certainty. So we'll go ahead and, and get into the decision. As you've nicely set up, the essential question here seems to be whether that ordinance dealing with the aesthetics of these wireless facilities uh, is preempted by state law and, and so thus powerless. Can you tell me exactly when you get into preemption analysis, what are some of the ways that a, a state law might preempt some local laws? Preemption can exist for a number of reasons. Um, the most obvious reason is uh, is when the state says so or the federal government says so. From time to time, they will do you the favor. Congress or the state legislature will do you the favor of saying, we intend to preempt entirely uh, local agencies' ability to regulate in X, Y, or Z area. As an example, a, a somewhat related example, um, in the Federal Telecommunications Act, Congress said to all local agencies, you may not regulate based on radio frequency emissions. So it, it, it can be a frustrating fact for local agencies that you can have a citizen come to the dais or to, to the lectern in a city council chambers and say, I don't want that wireless tower outside of my house because I'm afraid that it is going to cause negative health effects to me on account of radio frequency emissions or to my family or my children. And across the state, you will see planning commissioners and city council members who say, I'm sorry, we can't regulate on that basis. We're sympathetic to, to your worries, but we are pre preempted entirely from regulating on that basis. And that's because Congress said, you just can't do it. So number one is when the Congress or the state legislature say, you can't regulate on that basis. The other is if there's a direct contradiction between what state law says and a local law says. That's another example. And a third example is when, um, when the local law effectively just duplicates state law. Um, and in those, in all three of those instances, you can come up with an argument that that the, that the law, the local law, just doesn't count because it's preempted by the state or the federal law. Um, the fourth one, and the one that was really at issue here, is what they call implied preemption. And the idea is, um, the test is, does the ordinance enter into a field of regulation from which the state has implicitly excluded all other regulatory authority? And that's the argument T-Mobile was making, the one that I was sort of outlining before. They were saying, well, look, because we have a grant of a statewide franchise pursuant to a statewide statute, which was Public Utilities Code Section 7901, because we have that statewide franchise, there is no room. There was an implied decision on the part of 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 the state legislature, an implied decision to squeeze out local agencies from having any regulatory authority in this area. And that's the argument that ultimately the Court of Appeal rejected. Before rejecting it, they did discuss a case brought up by T-Mobile and one that you've mentioned in our discussion already, um, yep. the Pacific Telephone case that T-Mobile presented to, to support that point for implied preemption. Why did that case not carry the day in this ruling? And I'm actually grateful for what the Court of Appeal did on this front as well, uh, because it has been the case that for a long time, people have talked about the Pacific Telephone case. I think it's Pacific Telephone 1, which is a case from, I think, the 1950s. I'm doing that part from memory. It could be could have been the 40s. I think it was the 1950s. In Pacific Telephone, the idea was, or the attempt was made to exclude um, a telephone company entirely from accessing the right-of-way. And the court said in Pacific Telephone, well, you can't do that. Section 7901 conveys, or the, actually the statute that existed at the time, the predecessor to Section 7901, it conveys a right to be in the public rights-of-way. And so the Court of Appeal said exactly what the case said. They said that Pacific Telephone's holding was narrow, and the holding is that cities cannot exclude telephone lines from the public right-of-way on the basis that no local franchise has been obtained. 
Well, in this case, San Francisco wasn't asking for a local franchise from T-Mobile, um, nor was it contesting T-Mobile's right to access the public rights of way pursuant to their state franchise. Instead, they were doing something totally different from what was at issue in Pacific Telephone, and that was they were attempting to make sure that when the public rights of way were accessed, they were accessed in a way that was was designed to minimize the degradation of the aesthetic quality of the right of way. And so the and so the court said um, that because that proposition, that issue specifically wasn't considered in Pacific Telephone, the court said pretty succinctly that um, Pacific Telephone isn't an authority for a proposition that wasn't considered in that case. So as you say, the city couldn't altogether block uh, any development of telecommunications equipment. Absolutely. In fact, if you if you imagined a different ordinance, if you imagined an ordinance from the city of San Francisco, the city and county of San Francisco that said, uh, we're not going to allow any uh, wireless and wireless facilities in the public rights of way in the city of San Francisco, that ordinance would have been overturned on a facial challenge because state law says um, that they that there is a right to be in the public right of way. Okay, but even though stipulating that the locality can regulate um, this sort of equipment, if 7901 doesn't entirely preempt locality ordinances, those ordinances still have to comport with state law. The, the language of the ordinance have, has to mesh, has to be allowable under California law. So it seems like in the case at issue here, essentially there, there's some language in the state statute saying that the equipment put up by these companies cannot incommode the, the public rights of way. And so the, the locality's rule would have to comport with that language. It would have to make it so whatever the, the locality required wasn't anything, I believe, sort of more than that. Um, so essentially what it comes down to is the definition of, of incommode. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, which until uh, I started working on these cases thought meant thought it meant in the bathroom. Uh, so <laughs> in the end, it's true. Section 7901 says that the facilities, the, the telephone and telegraph lines won't be installed in such a way as to incommode the public use of the public rights of way. And so I guess really the full phrase that to, to look at is incommode the public use. So yes, incommode is part of it, but incommode what? The public use. And uh, and unfortunately, uh, the original version of Section 7901 was written in the 19th century, um, and uh, and maybe that word was in greater use in the 19th century. But really, it's not a, it's not a word that's in common usage now. And so, in order to understand what that word meant. You had um, you had the this court, and for that matter, the Ninth Circuit Court in the prior decision that I mentioned, the Palace Verdes Estates case, both kind of um, you know turning to Webster's and trying to understand what that word might have meant in the context of the original legislation. Um, and it, for whatever it's worth, after quite a bit of discussion of that issue the court did come to a conclusion about what they think the word incommode means for purposes of Section 7901. In the end, the court says, in our view, incommode the public use means to unreasonably subject the public use to inconvenience or discomfort or to unreasonably trouble, annoy, molest, embarrass, inconvenience, to unreasonably hinder, impede, or obstruct the public use. That's the conclusion that they reached uh, regarding incommode. And then if you want to unpack what that definition means, for today it means aesthetic regulations are permissible. I suppose an alternative definition supported by the telecoms would have been incommode just means, hey, if it like blocks the street, if it blocks people walking, if it creates an unsafe condition, that's incommode, nothing else. Yeah, that's absolutely what their position was, and uh, and they prevailed the argument for that position in a case that involved uh, the city of La Cañada, Flint Ridge, uh, a few years ago. But the case was ultimately depublished, um, or at least the portion of the case that suggested that that was the correct interpretation of the of the phrase uh, of the phrase "incommode the public use." Um, that portion of that decision was depublished. Nevertheless, the court of appeal. In this case, um, which is really the final say or the second to final say on what California law is on this subject, um, discussed the La Cañada Flint Ridge case 
um, and rejected the reasoning in that case uh, and said that that interpretation of the word incommode um, is just too narrow. Um, and they also noted that the full phrase requires an, un, an unreasonable incommodation of the public use. Um, and so while the wireless industry argued that um, an interpretation of the phrase incommode the public use that included aesthetic regulations would allow sort of open season for um, local agencies to begin regulating the appearance of facilities in the public rights of way. The court stressed that it really has to be an unreasonable incommodation to the public use before the local agency's authority can be triggered. All right, I guess the flip side of that coin is that if a local agency acts unreasonable in its regulation of aesthetic issues, it's going to run afoul of Section 7901. As you mentioned, this is the second to last say in the jurisdiction of the state of California, so the state high court could weigh in. It obviously gets a lot of petitions for review. Do you think that this is the sort of case that it might take up? You know, I think there are a lot of factors that uh, that cut a lot of different ways on that question. Um, first thing I'll note is that this isn't actually the first time a court of appeal has broached the meaning of Section 7901. It happened eight or ten years ago um, in a case coming out of San Diego. Um, But in that case, Supreme Court review was granted. And when Supreme Court review was granted by operation of law or rule, the the appellate decision was uh, depublished. And then subsequent to that depublication, the Supreme Court case settled and never never was resolved by the Supreme Court. And so... um, so the opportunity to have some guidance on the meaning of Section 7901, which existed for a narrow window of time, was lost. Um, the reason I mention that is, is obviously the Supreme Court took review of that case. Um, and so clearly this is an issue that has had some traction um, in prior sessions for the California Supreme Court uh, for review. So that's one thing. The other thing, though, is that this is undeniably the first decision to address the meaning of Section 7901, and for that matter, Section 7901.1, in California. And so there is no division among appellate districts. Um, we, they, the, the, there's only one case, and so there's no, there's no split of authority or ambiguity in the law or, or any real reason to protect the law in this regard. So that's the second factor. And then the third factor, and that one weighs against Supreme Court review. And then the third factor, and I'm not sure how this weighs, is that the the final line of the decision suggests that it's really the legislature that ought to, if they're unhappy with the conclusion of this case, it's the legislature that that has the ability to speak and, 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 and achieve a different outcome. And I could see that as as being a suggestion that instead of there being Supreme Court review, why don't we just kind of sit and wait and see if the if the legislature agrees or doesn't agree, and and if it doesn't agree, if it decides to offer some clarification or change to the law, and that one I think probably cuts a little bit against Supreme Court review too. Perhaps the the state legislature could add a, a clause in the the definition section of what exactly they mean by incommode. <laughs> that would be that would be nice, but I, I have to tell you, um, I think that the idea of stripping local agencies of authority over the aesthetics associated with these facilities, I think that would be a lost opportunity, uh, because if you were to just roll back your own memories and, and think about what wireless towers looked like, wireless facilities looked like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. They were terrible. I mean, they were truly terrible. You had, you had these, uh, these, these ugly monopoles that would go up and they'd have sort of a, a Christmas tree arrangement of antennas that would come off of them. No effort made to disguise equipment, no landscaping, no undergrounding, um, and the size of the antennas was significant. And today... There's been a lot of progress. Um, the antennas are getting smaller. The designs are getting more intelligent. Um, the stealthing, when it is done, doesn't look absurd like it used to. 
And so there's a lot of progress, and there are a lot of different reasons for that progress. There's no doubt a lot of different reasons for the progress. But I suggest that one reason for that progress is because local agencies are pressing the envelope. They're looking for better solutions. Um, and by and large, they're not looking to keep these facilities out of the right-of-way. They're looking for better solutions when they go into the right-of-way. The reason I know they're not looking for ways to keep them out of the right-of-way is because I do a lot of work for local agencies. I do work as a city attorney down here in Southern California, and I've worked up and down the state on telecommunications ordinances. And, you know, 15 years ago, um, there was a lot of pushback. There were folks that just didn't want antennas. They just didn't want antennas, particularly in residential neighborhoods. But things are changing. There is a significant amount of demand now in the public for data and the ability to use their phones wherever they go. And as that changes, I think sort of the attitude and the view of government toward wireless facilities has changed a bit too. So the point now is not to find ways or, or justifications for exclusion. It is instead to find ways to intelligently allow these facilities to be deployed. Maybe one last one you sort of hint at it as an upshot of this ruling concerns from telecommunications companies like T-Mobile would be, well, hey, if you allow so much regulation, we won't be able to do anything. We won't be able to service your neighborhoods and, and your citizens that want this uh, communications technology. But it sounds like you think uh, this ruling does strike the right balance between uh, the provision of those services and the ability for cities to still maintain the aesthetic level that cities and uh, citizenry appreciate. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. Um, and I think if that's the argument of, of telecommunications companies, I think they're right. I think the cons- the local constituents are more and more letting uh, cities know that uh, both both in terms of residents and businesses, they're letting cities know that um, good, if not ubiquitous, wireless coverage is an important part of a healthy city. And so I. I can I I think that if to the extent that's the argument, I think they're correct, and I think uh, you will see if you will continue to see a growth in in cities. Some of them I think will look toward um, like master planning um, types of schemes where they proactively identify the the appropriate sites for wireless facilities on a go forward basis because by being proactive, they can kind of dictate good outcomes ahead of time instead of instead of having these things come in on a one-off basis. Jeff Melching from Rutan and Tucker, I really appreciate you being on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And with that, our program for September 23rd, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Jamie Lee Williams from the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Jeffrey Melching for Tan and Tucker. I'd like to thank you as well for tuning into the program. It's greatly appreciated. And I have some folks to thank here on the production staff, including Dominic Fercasa, Nicholas Sonnenberg, Ellen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.